back to the Cyclotus Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Monday, March 21st. We had a pile of racing over the weekend. We had, of course, Milan San Remo. We had Trofeo Alfredo Binda. We had dropper posts being used on the Poggio. We had all kinds of interesting stuff to talk about. So we're going to get into it here today. We've got, well, like an 8 out of 10 crew today, I'd say. Dane, <laughs> how are you? I don't know. I... Uh, now, now my confidence is not as high. Now I, I, I just feel like an eight out of ten. I don't know, but I'm all right. Eight, so that's a solid. It's beat. pretty good. It's You're pretty fine. Good. Yeah, yeah. James, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Can't complain a whole lot. Got a comfy place to sit. I'm nice and warm. Could be worse. And Shoddy Dave, welcome back to the pod. Hey, nice to be back. Been a little while. Been off gallivanting. Uh, been to racing. Been to some top secret stuff I can't talk about. So yes, lovely to be back. Keep an eye on the Cycling Tips YouTube channel for some of the stuff that Shadi has been up to. But before we get into today's episode, Dane, tell me about Hammerhead. Yeah, I'll do just that, Kaylee. Uh, specifically the Hammerhead Crew 2. The Hammerhead Crew 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today. With industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options so you can explore with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. Seamlessly import routes from Strava, Komoot, and more. Route, reroute, or route, reroute. Or create pin-drop routing on the fly, all available with turn-by-turn directions and upcoming elevation changes. Tens of thousands of cyclists have chosen the unparalleled Karoo 2 as their trusted riding companions, including Chris Froome and Justin Williams. Hammerhead athletes keep on course and stay aware of upcoming elevation changes with their Karoo 2 devices. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom color kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code CYCLINGTIPS at checkout to get yours today. That's a free custom color kit and premium water bottle with the purchase of a Karoo 2. Go to hammerhead.io, add all three items to your cart, and use promo code CYCLINGTIPS. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for podcast listeners, so don't forget to use the special promo code. That's hammerhead.io, promo code CYCLINGTIPS, and get your Karoo 2 and a free custom color kit and premium water bottle today. Thanks to Hammerhead for supporting the podcast. Superb work, Dane. Really, Thank you. genuinely superb work. Did Did yeah. they ever get back? All to, right, let's get into this episode. Uh, hold on. Did they ever get back to us <laughs> to um, clarify if their name is actually from I think the um, the movie Bed Knobs and Broomstick, or was it Mary Poppins? One of the kids in one of them films says Carew. <laughs> I have no idea, Johnny. Right, that, <laughs> I have no idea whatsoever. I want to know where the no- name comes from. Well, I'm sure we've been in touch with them, so we can we can find out. Uh, I probably promised that last time and then we didn't, so I apologize. But I, I I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Let's talk about the weekend's bike racing. We're going to talk about Milan San Remo first because it is chronologically the first. It happened on Saturday. Now, there was a couple... Well, actually, there were a lot of interesting storylines kind of coming into this year's MSR, not least of which was the fact that everybody was getting sick. Dane, what was happening last week? Yeah, I think there was just, you know, as they say, something going around. Uh, there were a handful of COVID you know, cases, but I think it was mostly just people having the flu or a cold. 
um, your, kind of your standard virus problems. Uh, just quite a few riders were ultimately scratched from the race within only the last few days uh, due to illness. Uh, and yeah, so that meant that the field was just not quite what we expected as of, you know, four days prior. I wrote the preview for the race on, I, I guess it was Tuesday uh, and into Wednesday we published it. And uh, yeah, a lot of the riders that I expected to be at the race were not there. Uh, and riding on Wednesday. <laughs> Some pretty I, key ones. <laughs> yeah, you, you would have thought that being, you know, four days out, you'd be pretty close. But no, ended up that uh, quite a few of the names we expected to be there ended up not being there. Uh, Julien Alaphilippe was one of them. Uh, one of the kind of names that, that was not there after all. Uh, and quite a few others. Caleb Ewan, I think, who has finished second of the race twice, was was one of those expected to really be in the mix for the win. Uh, and yeah, a number of riders were, were out. And that led to some surprise. Or I think it helped, contributed to some surprise entries. Uh, not least among them was Matthew Vanderpool, who made his return to racing at San Remo uh, after, what was it, three, three months out of competition, I guess. Uh, he last rode a cross race in December and then, of course, took quite a while off while he was recovering from some back issues. So the start list for San Remo, which is a monument, first one of the season, was very much in flux even as of two days out. Uh, and that was uh, something that we kind of had to keep an eye on the whole whole of last week. Yeah, so lost Jasper Stoyven, lost lost Caleb Ewan, lost Alaphilippe, lost a number of names that we would have expected to see, well, in, in the pointy end, on the Poggio, on the Cipressa, et cetera, onto the Via Roma. But it was obviously it was a great race anyway. Uh, and I listened to last week's episode, uh, which I was not on, and so was not there to defend Milan San Remo from Abby's apathy. Uh, <laughs> and I was disappointed that I was not on that particular episode because once again, I was proven right by this particular edition that the, the last 20 minutes of this bike race were stunning. They were they were so exciting. They were edge of the seat stuff, uh, even without some of the biggest names that we were expecting heading into the race. And that was largely thanks to a rider who has been well quite good so far this season, Tade Pogaccia, who we knew that he would try to light things up into the finale of MSR. And lo and behold, he did so. Yeah, he was the fact that he was riding San Remo meant that. You know, for the week leading up to the race, there was a lot of talk about when he would attack and where he would attack. Because not being a sprinter for all, for all of his many abilities, he's he's not a great finisher. Uh, he doesn't have that finishing kick. He was going to have to go on the attack if he wanted to win this race. And I think there was some question of, well, is he going to go on the Cipressa, which is quite a ways out. Uh, and he did not. He decided to attack and attack and attack and attack on the Poggio, which made for an awesome Poggio climb uh, because he was very active, uh, but he was unable to get away. And I think the way that the race played out, I thought was pretty interesting. And, and it kind of reminded me of a few races we've seen over the past year or two where the maybe the two big favorites just marked each other. And in this case, it was Pogacar attacking and Watt van Aert uh, constantly being right there um, and, and not allowing him to get away or Maybe somebody else closed it down, but he Wildfire was right there, and that kind of kept Pogacar from getting off the front. And then it ended up being somebody else who took the win in the end. We'll get to Mate Moric and his little 
drop her post in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they made it hard, right? Like, but Gotcha and his team made it really, really hard. The, the group coming into the bottom of the Poggio was significantly smaller than we've seen in recent years. It was already down to, what, 20 or 30 riders max at that point. You know, Davide Formolo took a, a massive pull on that flat across from the Cipressa to the Poggio after they had really kind of lit it up already on the Cipressa. So they'd already kind of whittled this thing down enough, but not they hadn't fully gotten rid of all of the sprinters, right? There was still a fair number of them around. I mean, well, Pogacar's not going to beat Wavener in a sprint most of the time. Uh, so even just the fact that Wout was still sitting there meant that they well, they hadn't gotten the job done by the bottom of the Poggio, which isn't too surprising. He tried, how many times did he attack? Like four, maybe? At least four or five. No, it was, it was four. But if you look at his power files, it's sort of like six accelerations. So there's other ones where he's chased other people down, but yeah, four attacks by himself. That it shows that that the climb's not for him. It, it, like normally, he needs one, doesn't it? One, two maximum. But generally, one speaking, it's it's nice to see that he's uh, beatable. I'm sure everybody else in that peloton are like clapping their hands that he uh, didn't go away as they may have expected him to. I, I still think it's a race that Pogacar can win. And I don't know if you guys agree with me on this one or not, but I still think it's a race and he can win. I think that this year, in particular due to his dominance all spring and just who he is now, you know, he was so closely marked that he had to attack four times on the Poggio. But if there were other riders, if Philippe was around, for example, and if there, if there were other riders who were willing to push on early in the Poggio and Pogacar could counterattack, for example, versus just trying to literally ride off the front over and over and over again. I do think it's the kind of race that he, he could potentially get the, the gap that he needs to win it. But I think that we saw, and this is this is one of the great things about Milan San Remo, why I love this race so much and why, why I was so sad that I was not on last week's episode, <laughs> is that it's not a, it's it, there's so much going on in that last half hour there's so many different tactics there's so many different sort of needs and desires of various teams and various individuals that for everything to align for a rider like Pogacar is is going to take a lot of luck and frankly some other teams not working with them in a sort of teammate perspective but doing things that work in his favor i, I agree with you there but i also think for him to win I would say he'd have to go on that penultimate climb. On the Chapresa? Exactly. Just a little group to get away. Him, you, you know, the big names. Get four or five of them away on on that p- previous climb. And if you have, you've got four guys away. And that, uh, what is it, so 8K? I can't remember how many kilometers it is between the two like climbs. 7K in between the seven, two, eight yeah. K. That's the sort of move you've got to, he's got to hit him whether not least expecting, but not expecting him as much as they would on that final climb either. I honestly think that would be a a way of winning the race for him because yeah, that final climb, everyone's everyone's watching each other. Everyone's everyone knows who the hot favourites are, obviously, and that's why the sort of rider who won this race and has last year as well with um, Jesper. Stevens, it, it, Stoyven, Stoyven, with Desper Stoyven's, <laughs> uh, and also Anderson getting second last year and getting seventh this year. It's it's a sort of ride that it's a sort of climb that plays into their favour. 
when people are watching each other, not expecting, yeah, the likes of the people, the, the guy who won this this year's race, um, not doesn't sit on, but they can hide away a little bit. Do you know what I'm? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying here, guys? Yeah, well, I mean, what, the, the interesting thing for me is that so Mate Maharaj, which we'll we'll talk about the descent and how he did that in a, in a second. I think we're we're still on the climb at, the, at this point in time where he didn't really do much on the on the climb of the Poggio, but it is this race has turned from the sort of sprinters monument, which it was for a very long time. I mean, this is a race that was won by Mario Cipollini back in the day, right? To in the last couple of years, it is the it is whoever can time their move correctly. Even if they end up pulling a couple of riders with them, it's whoever has the perfect timing or in Moharaj's case, the perfect timing and just daredevil <laughs> descending skills. But like I said, we'll get to the, we'll get to the descent in a second. Dane, I want to get your thoughts on, on Yumbo and, and Wavenart and Roglic in particular, because they were active on the Poggio. They were active on the Chapressa too. Obviously they didn't get what they wanted out of this race, but it felt like they were, it felt like they were they were relatively effective, just not particularly lucky to me. I think that's a pretty accurate reading. I, I feel like they did everything that they that they were supposed to do, uh, and I think the winning attack of this race, just like last year, as as Dave just pointed out, it kind of came down to the circumstance. Um, Stoyven and Mahorich are both great riders. I mean, Mahorich is we saw how powerful he is uh, last year, and I think it was a matter of sort of the big favorites marking each other and he kind of got away when people weren't I don't, I don't want to say weren't paying attention but just weren't marking him uh, and I think Yumbo did put played a smart race they they marked the right guy because you have to mark Tadej Pogacar uh, and it was just a matter of at that point there's not a whole lot else I feel like they could have done uh, so I feel like they played a decent race and just kind of have to tip the cap to Mohoric for taking advantage of the situation. Uh, but I think Roglic and Van Aert did a nice job of chasing down Pogacar. Roglic did try at one point to kind of sneak away. And then I, I guess you could say maybe Wap Van Aert should have tried to attack himself. But I think his best chance of of winning was to kind of hold on and, and wait for the potential to out-sprint those other guys and you know obviously that didn't happen but i don't have too much criticism i think for yumbo yeah i mean you know he's got his one bunch of sprints at the tour de france right you 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 would think that he would be able to uh to win out of most small groups at the end of msr but but msr is it's a unique it's a unique race right we, we've seen really good sprinters lose to not particularly good sprinters because it's at the end of 300 kilometers and that's what that's what makes it so interesting so what about Vanderpool, were you surprised by him? I mean, <laughs> this is the first race, first road race uh, in months. Uh, he's been training really hard. You know, he, he posts a lot of his stuff on on Strava, and you know, he's he's been doing huge blocks. So not surprising that he was fit necessarily, but still, racing is different. I, I was I was impressed by where I mean, the guy ended up on the podium. He ended up in third. I was pretty impressed by that, given where he's coming from, and the fact that he was not just not racing, but he was getting over injuries. Yeah, I feel like very impressed and yet not surprised, because at this point, I try not to be surprised by anything that he does. And the same is true for Van Aert. They just they're so impressive that um, going into the weekend, I thought, yeah, there's a chance that Matthew Vanderpool could finish on the podium because he's Matthew Vanderpool. Like that's just something that he could totally do. Uh, so very impressed, but at this point. It's it's not all that surprising that he's uh, super impressive. No, 
not a, not a, not in the least. I mean, still like third on your first bike race of the year. <laughs> That's 300k. It's not like it was like a little mini semi classic, right? It was like it's Milan San Remo, and he still finished in third place. It's the longest race of the season. Yeah, unless you unless you count in uh, um, Melbourne Warnable, is it? Well, well, that one in Australia. <laughs> not sure that one counts. I'm not sure. sure I'm sure counts. some of our listeners will argue with you there, though. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Well, let's let's get into Mohoric. Let's get into the descent off the back of the Poggio. And and like I said, one of the interesting things about this race in recent years to me is the fact that that the descent has become, and actually that's kind of always been, but I feel like it's even more important than it used to be, right? Because we we see we see more gaps open up in the last half decade on the descent than we have been seeing on the climb. And that's a little bit unusual. Now, we're going to actually drop this week's Nerd Nugget into the middle of the episode. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Because the the focus of it, the topic of it is, was well, it was the big topic of the day on Saturday, which, James. Daily. Mohoric had a dropper post. (laughs) He had a dropper post on a road bike, and used it to good effect. I mean, I'm not going to say that that's the reason why he dropped everybody, but it probably didn't hurt. And it probably also didn't hurt when he had to save himself from two, well, three very near crashes. What, 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 let's, let's start at the very beginning because I think they'll probably a lot of our listeners out there have never ridden with a dropper post and maybe don't really know why that would be helpful. Why would he pick a dropper? Why would he grab a dropper post for the descent of the Poggio? Well, I want to back up even a little bit more than that because first of all, what I want to make very clear is what we mean by a dropper seat post because uh, when news of this came out, um, which I think actually came out came out from Ronan because he was quick on the quick on the uh, on the computer right after the the post race interview, um, <clears throat> but a lot of people were talking about how. Like Ivan Basso used a dropper more than 10 years ago, so on and so forth. And I want to make very clear that what Basso and some of the other teammates on Liquid Gas were using uh, was not a dropper seat post. It was an adjustable height seat post that FSA made for a while. You rotated this collar on the seat post and moved the moved the saddle up and down a few millimeters. Um, that is not a dropper seat post. The dropper seat post, uh, like what Mohorich and what is very commonly used in mountain biking is you basically push a, push a button or a lever and you get like a very gross, uh, very dramatic increase or very dramatic decrease in saddle height. Um, in this case, Mohoric was using a 50 millimeter travel um, Fox Transfer SL, which means he was able to drop his saddle instantly by 50 millimeters. Mountain biking, it's common to see now, you know, 150, 170, um, and so on um, tra- uh, saddle travel. So that's what Mohoric was using. Um, as far as why something like this would be would be useful. This is going to be old news to anyone who who anyone who mountain bikes right now, or I should say, a, a lot of people who mountain bike right now. Not everyone's using droppers, but um, it makes a huge difference in your descending capability when you can lower your overall center of gravity. So, fifty millimeters doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about how your total body plus bike weight is uh, what, like in his case, what, like 80 kilo, kilos, something like that, maybe? I'm not sure how heavy Mohoric is. Yeah, and when you, probably about but that. But when, when the vast majority of that is your body and you drop that by 50 millimeters, that's a big difference. The other thing, and this is something I brought up, I think, last year or something, when, um, when especially when you're at those sorts of speeds, uh, now that the super tuck is, is banned, um, having a dropper seat post essentially lets you more or less replicate the super tuck, close to it anyway, 
without going in violation of the rules because you're still seating on the seat. So it's a combination of handling and control and just straight up aerodynamics. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So like, do we think it won the race for him? I don't know if it won the... Well, it, if you look at how he was able to gap riders even in just like individual corners, you could definitely make the argument that it played a factor in him being able to drop people on that descent. Because I think it's very clear that a dropper seat post will not make a mediocre descender an amazing descender. But if you are already an amazing descender and then you add that in, then that could be enough of a difference. And on a descent like that, if you're able to gap your the people that you're with by even just a few meters, I mean, that obviously can make the difference. If if you're gone and you're and they're all of a sudden outside of your draft, then that's all it takes. Yeah, I, I mean, there were a couple other things at play for sure. I, I did. I saw some stats this morning on speed. I think they came from Velon. Uh, and most of the rest of that front group had averaged somewhere in the, within about a tenth of a kilometer per hour of I think it was 53.8, 53.9. And Mohoric averaged over 55 kilometers per hour on that descent. So we're talking a significant, I mean, two kilometers per hour doesn't, maybe doesn't sound like that, but that's a, that's a significant difference. That's where the gap came from, right? Now, there were some other things at play here. One, when he first got that gap, his countryman, Tadej Pogacar, was on the front. And I, you know, I'm not going to say that there was collusion there. I'm not going to say it was intentional, but they, those two guys are, are pretty friendly. And it, it looked to me like that gap opened just a hair faster than it might have otherwise. Uh, and of course, Pogacar at this point in the race was probably pretty well aware that he was not going to win, right? He had failed to drop the riders he needed to drop. And so it wouldn't surprise me if that was part of the reason why Mohoric was able to get a, a, bit of a, a bit of a gap so quickly. But it's probably sort of a combination of all these things, right? I'm going to disagree with you there. You're in the final four or five kilometers, what is it, five kilometers of a monument. It doesn't matter if you've tried to drop somebody up that climb and failed or tried to and succeeded. There's not a cat in hell's chance, even if it's your mate, that you're going to ease off. You're, you're going for that win. And as we know, he is a, he's a born winner out and out. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't, have, he would not have given up. But what we've got to remember is it, uh, Mahorovic has been training with this this winter. He said they've been thinking about it all winter. So he's, without a shadow of a doubt, been training with it. So he, he's he got used to it. He knows exactly how to handle it. And it's definitely helped him. It won't have helped him massively, but it's definitely helped him. That plus is, um, um, how do we put it politely, is... Uh, uh, he's just got the guts, hasn't he? I was going to use other words there. Is <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just to be clear, I'm not. I'm not saying, Shadi. I'm not saying that Pogaccio like sat up. He clearly didn't sit up, right? But that was. It was in the middle of one of those fast hairpin corners, and if your buddy goes by you, you're maybe ten percent less likely to, you know, basically take a massive risk in that corner in order to keep the wheel, right? Because he, Pogaccio is probably perfectly happy to see Mate Hamorich win the bike race at that time if he could not do so. Again, I'm not. You know, we don't. We don't know. Uh, they none, none of them said anything about this after the finish. But when you have two countrymen sort of riding like that, and in a very very key moment, I'm just saying, um, I wouldn't surprise me if if Pogacar was like, 
like I said, just didn't want to take the massive risk that w- would be required to chase down his his countrymen, which is what it would have been required in that moment. I mean, it went from no gap to what ten meters in the like basically exit of the corner because Mohoric clearly just d- didn't break as much and came in came into it faster, came out of it faster. Anyway, it was it it was an absolute masterclass in descending because Mohoric did a couple other things that were that would have helped him go a bit faster than everybody else as well. One of them, if you go back and watch, he was in a lower gear than everybody else out of most of those corners. So when he kicked it again, that higher cadence, he was basically able to put the power down a little bit faster. Now that did almost prove to be his undoing (laughs) right near the end of the race when he lost his chain, but was able to sort of pull it back on with the front derailleur. But that, that certainly... When he looked like he was accelerating faster at each one of those corners, that could be part of the essentially the technique that was really working for him as well. So another thing I want to point out is if, if you're looking at it straight, strictly in terms of the numbers, I mean, there are technically some downsides to him running a dropper seat post. Um, I mean, compared to an aero seat post, it would be theoretically slower basically everywhere else. Um, you're also adding with the lever and everything, you're probably adding close to 200 grams. So it's a fair bit of extra weight to lug around. But um, as we also know, I mean, it's cycling isn't winning bike races isn't just about it's not purely a numbers game, but it's like a it's like a moments game, right? It was like if you can, if you can have that decisive advantage, whether in terms of fitness or equipment or whatever, then that often is what leads to victory or not winning. And in this particular case, it does seem like his equipment choice did provide him the opportunity to have the advantage in that moment that was needed to win the race. Uh, you say it's like 200 grams difference. What we've got to remember though is, yeah, I'd be surprised if he's rode this bike for the full 300K of the race. I would be, I think he would have gone from uh, the, the aero op- offering that Merida have to this in the later stages. Plus, generally speaking, these bikes are that blooming light that um, mechanics on occasions have to add extra weight to hit the target, don't they? So, they could have prob- probably hit the target with that bike without having to put weight in there, possibly. Maybe, maybe. But I mean, I think the, the days of all every bike being 6.8 kilos is gone. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been quite a while since it's, it's been quite a while since we consistently weighed bikes that were exactly at 6.8 kilos. Um, and some teams do still have to add weight. But basically, once the disc brake thing came around, then the whole 6.8 kilo thing just went out the window. Also, if you know you're going to attack on a descent, then an extra 200 grams is good. I mean, obviously, you don't want to lug it around <laughs> for seven hours, but uh, that extra 200 grams is going to help you when you're going downhill. Plus 200 grams up up the last 3K climbs, it's, it's a, it, you're going up at a speed that um, 200 grams isn't really going to make that much of a difference for over, no, what, no. three and a half K? No, and we've, we've talked an awful lot about weight in general um, and just how again, looking purely at the numbers, lugging around an extra couple hundred grams really makes very little difference in terms of your overall performance. Anything else on MSR? Uh, I'm curious to see if this is if this sort of starts a trend because, I mean, I didn't think that this was really going to happen for a variety of reasons, but clearly it has. Um, but as, as we've always seen, when someone is a trendsetter in the Peloton and proves that something, that something new can work, um, then all of a sudden we, you know, we oftentimes see wider adoption. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. And the UCI apparently has stated that that they're not going to ban droppers, at least right now, anyway. Um, so we will see what happens here. I, I mean, 
it wouldn't surprise me if we do see the occasional use on, you know, for example, Grand Tours often have stages that are big mountain stages, but finish with a de- with a descent, right? And I could I could potentially see some riders doing it because not, not just the control thing and potentially you know getting around corners faster, but it, it does allow them to basically super tuck, and there is no question that that position is significantly faster on a descent than not having it. Uh, I mean, it, I could even see riders in the Gruppetto doing that. I mean. The Gruppetto is notorious for making a lot of its time back on descents because they descend like maniacs. And I I could see it, you know. We see Mark Cavendish with a, <laughs> a dropper post if he's at the Tour de France this year. I think it's possible. I'm just looking at which what I think is the Strava segment. But he's not the fastest down there, though, is he? Simon Clark's got it. Three minutes, 11 seconds at an average speed of 56.7. That was done uh, last year. That's 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 rapid, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's move on from Mahorich's fantastic descent. Was it? It was. I love just the the myriad ways in which uh, in which this race can be won. I think that's why it's such a special race. But the 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 different types of riders that can win it, the different ways it can be won, it's different every single year, and and that's why it's so good. Do we think? It can ever be a pure sprinter's race again, though. Like back in the days when you had Oscar Ferrer, Zabel, Cipollini. Realistically, that's sort of the last the last generation of when you used to get the the pure sprinters all coming into it together. Pataki, them sort of guys. I think it can be. I think it can be. Yeah. I mean, it would take it would take a sprinter with a really strong team, like the sprinter at the back of essentially a really strong classics team or something. Uh, but I think it's possible. I mean, Caleb Ewan has proved over the last couple of years that he is more than capable of getting over the Poggio. And if he's got a couple teammates that can do the same thing, then he's got a lead out on the Via Roma and then he has a pretty good chance of winning that bike race. So I do think that it it can swing back that direction. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been sort of less focus on big kind of MSR sprint trains in recent years. And so lo and behold, the, the, you get fewer sprints. Like I, I think that the, some of it is just the way that teams are setting up for it these days, but I do think it's possible to get back to that at some point. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> it's better this way. It's a more exciting race this way for sure. Although often, you know, those sprint trains would catch a rider at the very last second, right? I mean, was it Cavan Hausler years ago? where Cav literally caught him on the line from sort of a bunch that that's often the way that these things, that these things end up. All right. So Dane, who else impressed you on Saturday? Who, who, who rode out of their skin and, and either showed sort of future promise or just had a really good ride. Yeah. We should talk about Anthony Torgis because he, I think everybody is, is all eyes on Peter Sagan at total energies. You know, the new signing who is, who is the big name and has been a big name for a decade. Uh, but Torchis has been pretty impressive over the past few years in the classics. He finished fourth in Flanders in 2020. Uh, he's been second at the Warstore of Landeren. Um, I guess he was eighth at Flanders in 2021. But second at Milan San Remo is a little bit of a surprise. I, I was not expecting him to finish that highly. And he had a heck of a finish to this race, kind of snuck out, uh, sneaked out uh, in front of the chasing group and managed to secure that second spot. It's a little bit of tricky to try and, you know, weigh how important or how impressive this is when he's clearly racing for second. I think 
that moment when when Pogacar dropped his Pogacar, the moment when Mahoric dropped his chain, that it was all of a sudden, wait, is is Anthony Torres going to win this race? Uh, but yeah, <clears throat> it was it was a, a second place when there was a rider who it looked like he was going to take the win. So I don't know if he would have gotten second, you know, under different circumstances, but it's still very impressive. And and I think Total Energies has to be happy with the fact that it's not just gone for the classics. I think Torgis is a, is a real contender, an outsider. You know, he's not at Watt Van Arts level or anything like that for the for the one day races. And this is really promising for them. He's 27 years old. Uh, he has some versatility. And I think he gives them a, a really good rider to pair with Sagan. So second, obviously not a win, but it's a pretty big deal for for Total Energies, which is still a second division team. And, you know, that's that's not nothing when you're a second division team. Second at Milan San Remo. And Peter Sagan, once again, not really there. <laughs> it did have a mechanical, though. So to be fair, it did, uh, did have a mechanical, a, yeah. a, a terrible moment. Like with sort of, was it thirty-five k to go, something like that? Yeah, and and he was and he was sort of chasing through riders onto the Chapressa, uh, and and sort of almost got back. So you know, had some decent legs, but definitely was not clearly, obviously, did not factor in the finale. The, the team's definitely stepped it up, up this year, though, and I, I actually uh, bumped into. Uh, Turgis uh, at the Paris Velodrome two weeks ago. Thoroughly nice bloke, real like um, low key sort of understated bloke. You could quite easily not realise he's a a pro, ready for that breakthrough win. Really nice guy. If you look a little bit further down the uh, the standings, I want to point out that uh, obviously Tadej Pogacar was, was fifth. Jan Tratnik was ninth. That puts three Slovenians in the top 10 uh, of this race. None of them are Primoz Roglic. That's a country of 2.1 million with three finishers in the top 10 at Milan San Remo. So clearly the rest of the world, we have some work to do to uh, match Slovenia. Uh, and then a little bit further down, Binyam Grimai was, uh, he was 12th. He finished in a group 11 seconds back, uh, a little bit behind Arno Damar and Vincenzo Albanese, uh, which... I mean, he he's 21 years old, and this is his first monument. This is one of the biggest race. I think it's the biggest race he has done up to this point. Um, for him to hang on over 300k at the age of 21 and still be there, able to mix it up with these guys, uh, it's just really impressive, and I think really exciting for the future. Uh, he was, of course, second at the uh, U23 race at Worlds last year, and rides for Intermarché. And I think he's a rider that we're going to be talking a lot about uh, in the future here uh, and, and already capable. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners have seen that video from the U23 race at Worlds last year where he rode through like 15 people <laughs> in the last the last kilometer. But the, the, the thing that really impressed me at MSR and the reason why he kind of stood out to me was his positioning. So going up the Chapressa, he was sitting just right on the back of all of the top favorites, right? He was sitting like fourth, fifth, sixth wheel, most of the way up to the Chapressa. He got a little bit distance near the top, but he was right there the whole time. And that one, it takes, uh, takes really good legs. Two, it takes a lot of confidence as a 21-year-old in your first monument to stick yourself right next to Wafener, right next to Primoz Roglic, right next to Tadej Pogacar, right next to Mati van der Poel and all the rest, right? The fact that he was right in the perfect position that whole time. And then 
yeah, he he did get distance. He ended up in that in that second group, uh, eleven seconds back. But that's that's eleven seconds, right? I mean, you're talking about a very young rider in their first attempt at this thing. I, like you said, I, I he is one to watch. He's going to be doing some really really incredible things i think over the next couple of years just looking at his results he's had a solid start to the season he got that win earlier on in uh Mallorca, uh in alcudia port alcudia uh which it's a 1.1 but it's definitely um not a bad way to start the season at your second race winning but parry nisi was knocking on the door at um uh, with, with in the sprints he got a fourth uh, in one sprint stage of six another six so he's definitely knocking on the door we, I, I would think we should see him do something uh, once the uh, peloton heads north to the Northern Classics. Maybe not the Classics, Classics. Definitely. Maybe not. Plus that team's hitting above their weight this year already. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, just a, just a name to keep an eye on and sort of, like I said, stuck out to me in the middle of the race because of his positioning and then also the result was pretty darn good. So let's move on. Let's move on from Milan San Remo uh, and into... Sunday's race. Now, for a much, much deeper, more in-depth discussion of Trofeo Alfredo Binda, head over to the Freewheeling podcast. Abby and Amy and all the rest have have done an incredible job chatting through that race, which is always one of the best. It's one of the oldest on the women's calendar. I think not is it the oldest? I don't know. It's old. <laughs> it's been around a very long time. And actually, the other thing that they discussed over on Freewheeling, uh we could drop a bit of it in here. Now, go over and check it out. The other thing they discussed on freewheeling was was essentially whether a women's Milan San Remo should exist. And one of the major concerns is the fact that Alfredo Binda is such a good race and has been around for so long that you you don't really want to mess up that weekend, right? You don't want to force the women's peloton into, into some very long race, which for if you sort of extrapolate out the distance compared to normal women's professional races it'd probably be something in the neighborhood of like 180 200k you don't want to do have to do that on saturday and have to race trofeo alfredo binda on sunday because it'd be a lot of the same riders who'd be quite good at both but anyway let's so briefly sunday's race uh won by balsamo the the current reigning of course current reigning uh the reigning world champion in a a quite tactical display now now trofeo binda finishes with a series of laps with a pretty significant climb on each one uh and then and then kind of a hairy descent so it's actually been one on the descent in the past i think hashini wadoma was the last to do it that way um but trek sort of kept their gunpowder dry a lot of the way through and elisa longo borghini was able to to kind of control things through that final lap and set balsamo up for a sprint victory that really well it's it's She's still, let's not forget, she's still really young. She's kind of relatively green. She, yes, has a world championship, but she hasn't, she's, the, the Palmares is still not particularly long, but she really kind of proved with this with this win, one, she's more than just a sprinter. Two, she's one to keep an eye on through most of the spring here. I feel like going into late last year, uh, Baltimore was certainly a talented writer and a writer who we knew was sort of a rising star, but I think it was a, a pretty big surprise uh, how well she closed out the year, obviously with the world championship. She won a stage of the women's tour. Uh, she has wasted no time in kind of establishing her credentials in, in the, in the new year here. She won a stage on her very, she won her very first race of the year, a stage at the set of Valenciana. 
she was second at Ronda Vondrenta, and then she goes and wins uh, Alfredo Binda. And I think it's it's pretty abundantly clear at this point that she's she's a pretty uh, major player in the sprints. And and it's I think it's I don't want to say it's happened really quickly because she was already a rising star, but certainly since late last year, she has sort of established herself as a, as a dominant. Uh, player in the, in the sprints and somebody that needs to be you know kind of watch and we don't always see that from world champions a lot of times world champion you know we we all talk about this right after they they win there's this sort of a drought where they they go weeks and weeks and then they get, keep getting asked about it when are you gonna win well she wasted no time at all she won a race right after worlds last year and she's kept on winning into this year and is is just really difficult to beat too because i mean like I said, uh, Trofeo Fredomenda finishes with a really difficult lap. Like it's not an easy; those laps are are hard. They've got a, a pretty decent climb in them, pretty decent descent in them, and she was still there. She was able to hang on and then win the sprint. And so, there's a lot of the women's calendar that looks kind of like that, right? A hard day with a kick at the end. And so that that's basically what makes her what makes her a a, a pretty solid bet for a huge number of races coming up this spring. I think. Trek also has a really nice combination with her and uh, Elisa Longo-Borghini because they're two riders who are very good, obviously, uh, and two riders who are very different. And that allows them to kind of play the tactical game really well. Um, it, it allows them to send Longo-Borghini on the attacks and, and follow the moves, chase things down. And if they don't go well, just change tactics and back uh, Balsamo entirely. And that, that's a really nice one too. Uh, Italian combination for them that I think is going to keep producing results here. Another thing worth noting is that with her moving teams at the uh, uh, in the off season from Trek to Trek from Valka, it's uh, it's nice to see that she's settled into a, a, world, a women's world tour team quickly, and because she was at that Valka team from like day dot, she was a. She went from juniors straight into that, and she was ushered through like it, as as a family member, basically. Obviously, they were extremely sad to see her go, but they had developed her from a junior all the way to well, a world champ. So it's nice to see that she's moved teams and bedded in, I suppose, with the team really, really well. It's kind of unfortunate. This is a total aside, but it's kind of unfortunate that cycling doesn't have sort of a transfer market like some other major sports have, right? Because well, that's a way that would be a way for smaller teams to make some money, right? And it does happen every once in a while. Johnny Savio is really good at finding Colombians and then selling them to Ineos, for example, for exorbitant amounts of money. But it doesn't happen very often. And like in this particular instance, like you've got a you've got a rider who is clearly going to be a, a, a world beater, right? You sell them to Trek. If this was, I don't know, like international soccer or whatever, you sell them to Trek for a couple million bucks and you fund your team for the next few years, right? It's just, we're a long way from that <laughs> on both the men's and women's side of the sport. But it is, it, it kind of removes that ability to fund some of these smaller, more developmental teams with essentially the, the budgets of the big teams because cycling is just not set up that way. Anyway, total tangent. I just, it just sort of struck me as that move happened from Valcar to Trek and Valcar didn't really benefit, right? They, they they put all the time and energy and money into development of, of Balsamo, and, and they didn't really benefit from that. So it's an unfortunate system that cycling has at this point in time. Anyway, like I said, big, long discussion, obviously, of Alfredo Mende over on freewheeling. Make sure you go check that out. It's on wherever you get your podcasts. 
Dane, what do we got coming up this week? What uh, what do bike race fans need to keep an eye out for? Yeah, so the Volta Catalunya has just started uh, as of recording time. We just saw the finish of the first stage. Michael Matthews got his first win in like a year and a half. First win in his second stint with the bike exchange team. So good for Matthews to pull that off uh, there in the opening stage of the Volta Catalunya. That's going to continue throughout the week. And that tends to be a pretty nice race to watch right about now because I think a lot of the peloton is sort of in classics mode. Uh, but there's, you know, plenty of big name climbers in, at Catalonia this year, as, as ever. Hoping to do the stage racing thing, so don't forget about that. Uh, the Copia Bartali is also this week, which I think will be maybe most interesting in that, well, one of the reasons it'll be interesting is that Chris Froome is supposed to return there. Um, Matthew Vanderpool, we originally thought was going to return at Capia Bartali, and then he just, you know, casually decided to go finish on the podium at San Remo. So there's another stage race to kind of watch. Uh, and then, of course, the classics are really ramping up. You've got Bruga de Pana on Wednesday. You've got E3 on Friday and Gent Lovelgem on Saturday. So quite a few big one-day races are here, uh, which kind of feels like they've crept up, but they're all of a sudden, they're here. The, the big Tour of Flanders you know, build-up races are, are all upon us, and that's going to be exciting to watch. Bike racing is back. Well, that's San Remo, opening weekend. We call it like three different things opening weekend. That's all right. <laughs> the real hardcore traditionalists say that MSR is, is the opening of the season. Uh, I think that's a bit living in the past, personally. I think there's some pretty good racing ahead of that, but we are well and truly in the thick of it now. Last little tidbit here. Before we wrap up for today, you've probably seen on our site or some other site or social media or whatever, Lachlan Morton uh, fundraising for Ukraine relief with a ride from was Munich to the Ukrainian border. He's raised 200000 dollars at time of, of recording. Uh, if we have an updated number... And again, that was for Ukraine crisis relief. Just another amazing Lachlan effort. I mean, the, the, the purpose of this, one, of course, is to raise money, and two, is to sort of show how close all of this is to a lot of the, the folks that are following European road racing and would, would be following Lachlan Morton. Uh, we included a link to donate in the story that we put up. You can also head over to globalgiving.org slash fundraisers slash one ride away, uh, or just Google it. They are still, the, the donations are still open. So if you want to support what Lachlan is doing there and support, uh, well, support Ukrainian relief, then go drop some bucks in there. So did I see him do, do it in 47 hours? Is that right? Yeah, it was 1,063 kilometers in one push. I want, is, that was the, it's unbelievable. He's, it does these massive efforts and stays up for days on end. I've not seen him for a couple of years. I want to see if he's aged in the past two years. I've not seen him. Because right? <laughs> you're putting yourself through some strain there, aren't you? He seems to love it. He just loves nothing more than getting on his bike and riding till he can't anymore. It it does seem like the sort of thing that maybe takes something out of you, huh? Just a little, yeah. yeah like permanently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like permanently. Uh, anyway, like I said, we got, we got a story up on the site. Go check it out. If you're looking for the link, you can also Google that. Um, it's relatively easy to find, and donations are still open. And of course, it's a it's a pretty fantastic uh, place to put your money. So, particularly at this moment moment in time. With that, 
that's it from us today. We're under an hour, fellas. We did a we did a good job today. We usually just go on and on and on. <laughs> I thought we were quite succinct. And I didn't have to wait an hour to talk. And James got to talk in the middle. Maybe we'll do that more often. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week with another episode of the Cycling Tips podcast. Also, little little announcement here. Um, if you're going to be at Sea Otter, I believe we've now confirmed this. Uh, James and Dave Rome and myself, perhaps, uh, will be doing some Nerd Alert uh, recordings from the Sea Otter Classic in a couple weeks. So if you're going to be there... It's sweet to avoid... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you make sure that you spend, you just go the opposite direction. Uh, no, swing by the sort of the Cycling Tips Pink Bike outside tent will be sort of a big compound thing over there. And come say hi, and you can watch us record an episode. We're going to be doing, I think it's 3 o'clock on Friday, 3 o'clock on Saturday. We'll, we'll be putting those episodes together. Kaylee is also going to be taking gifts of hammers, by the way. So if you, ha- I, if yeah. you have a hammer that you think that Kaylee would like, then pre- please bring it with you. He would be more than oh, happy God. to bring that home with him. <laughs> I, yeah, I have a 70 pound weight limit on my United check bag. So (laughs) (laughs) can we get to 70? That is the question. Uh, Yes. If you're going to be at Seattle, come say hi. We love seeing our listeners in real life because it reminds us that you exist because frankly, we're just at the moment talking to ourselves in a circle. Uh, And it's, and it's nice. It's nice to actually get to talk to people out there in the world. So swing on by and we'll be back with another regular episode of the Cycling Tips podcast next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.